0: As a leader, that is your job, is to unlock the energy and the passion.
1: Hi, I'm Duncan Pryor, digital transformation consultant and host of the Making Things Work podcast. I love looking for innovative and creative ways to make work better so that we can get the balance right in our lives and have seen how leadership and teams can accomplish that. In this podcast series, we meet a group of executive leaders to understand what leadership means to them and their approach to delivering transformation and change in the workplace so that teams achieve great things and people see their careers flourish. Today, I'm talking with Paul Cobben, Chief Transformation Officer at DBS Bank in Singapore and co-author of a book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, How to Make Creativity an Everyday Habit Inside Your Organization, which came out just a few weeks ago. Hi there, Paul. Hi, Duncan. So let's start by setting the scene at DBS Bank at the outset of the transformation to provide us with the context, because I think that's important for this story. Yeah, so we've got back
0: in time to 2009, which is when I joined DBS. And DBS is the largest bank in Southeast Asia. It's, it's headquartered uh, in Singapore and it, it operates um, across Asia i would have been hired to be the transformation officer for the company and the true story was that I, I got into a taxi on the very first day and i asked a taxi driver to take me to dbs and and he said oh dbs damn bloody slow and the reason was that at that time dbs had this reputation for being a slow bureaucratic company that certainly wasn't putting customers first and a lot of employees at dbs at the time were embarrassed to say they worked there our financial performance was mediocre at best and if you look at the context and history of dbs it was founded in 1968 and it was set up to help this new nation called singapore to develop in fact the d in dbs originally stood for development so it's the development maker of singapore and it was a government institution and and was full of bureaucracy and and red tape and when I arrived I found the internal processes were woeful and there was this no focus around uh, anything progressive and certainly not a, a focus on the company. So the story of DBS is quite remarkable in that by 2016 we started winning accolades around we were in 2016 we were named best digital bank in the world by Euromoney. And in 2018 we were the first bank in history to be named best bank in the world by the banker, Euromoney and Global Finance all at the same time. And for this little medium-sized bank headquartered in this tiny country of Singapore, it was quite an achievement to get that recognition.
1: That's where the story of DBS's transformation came. from. There's a great point in the book which explains a situation faced by DBS and many other companies where it explains in a slightly constructive way how that happens in that an organization is set up to optimize the current way of working. And it's not the status quo as such, which is rather a negative point, but rather a more positive way of thinking about people working hard, doing exactly what the organization wants. And that's a good starting point to understand where you are. But then, of course, the world starts changing. And that's where the problems start. That's right. If you think about
0: it, any organization is operating in some kind of equilibrium. And people, uh, culture and organization, is just a function of people's behaviors. And people react and respond to the environment around them. You think about you behave differently when you visit a library than when you visit a nightclub, and the workplace is no different. And the system, which is a combination of our processes, our policies, the way we run meetings, how we reward people, how we do budgeting, etc., is all drives a certain behaviour. The trouble is, therefore, the status quo, if you like, as you call it, all this, and it creates inertia. You know, and it's very difficult, therefore. To change and to change behaviors. And so what the book explores is a couple of fundamental ways that you can do that. One of them is this idea of culture by design and taking a leaf out of the behavioral science literature and encouraging people to think through about changing behaviors at the micro level. Another important element is the macro level. If you've got to change the system, if you want people to experiment quickly and learn quickly through experimentation, maybe the annual budgeting process is going to have to change. There's so often times annual budgeting is such a deeply held belief about it's the only possible way of running a company. That's really challenging. So there's these tensions form inside a company that's trying to change.
1: Yes, and the problems are manifest themselves, not so much in the complexity of, for example, the annual budget process, but literally customers of queuing out the door of the bank and queuing at ATMs. The problems were there for all to see.
0: That's right. When I joined in 2009, you didn't need a lot of investigation to know that things fundamentally wrong. You just have to walk down the street. And in fact, our CEO, Pish Gupta, who joined a few months after us, did exactly this a few weeks before he joined. He'd go and have a look at some of the branches and saw queues out of the door. He saw you know, there would be a bank of ATMs from a variety of Singapore-based banks. And inevitably, the queue would be at the DBS
1: ATM. And so we just knew we had some fundamental things to get right. Moving into the transformation, There's a general point made in the book, which I found quite refreshing, where it can be a pitfall simply to look at the innovation and success of the tech giants. That's not a good starting point or a recipe for success. However, at DBS, you kind of did that by seeing those companies as competitors, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, and so on. And can you talk about that? Because there's a subtle difference there, isn't there, in emphasis and approach between those two ways of looking at the world? Yeah, that's right we visited
0: a lot of those companies like many other people did. Maybe by good luck more than good management, I don't know, but we took away a different set of insights. And when we visited them, we didn't just walk around their head offices and notice they had foosball tables and brightly colored bean bags. What we did is we got into a conversation initially with their technologists, and a couple of things dawned on us. You know, When we went to see Amazon, for example, you know they talked about the transformation, the, the technical transformation they have been through because when they first started you know at amazon.com they were on a mainframe and you know, they very quickly realized that that wasn't gonna be enough for them to grow at the rate they had planned and that's why they ultimately created this new architecture which ultimately became the public cloud the same for netflix netflix um if you recall i think it was around 2008 2009 something around that time they had a big outage and it was a wake-up call for them and this is still the time when they were still kind of sending out DVDs. But it was a wake-up call for them and their aspiration to be this online movie streaming company. They couldn't ever have an outage like that again. And that's when they formed their partnership with Amazon, AWS, and re their technology. There's a couple of insights there. One is it was possible to do these transformations. These companies are very open about how they did it, in fact, we were willing to share some of the technology that open source did. And so this gave us a belief, and we felt at the time that you know, they had taken seven years to make those transformations, so with the learning, we could do it in less, and we targeted to do the technology transformation in five years. The other thing that we discovered, and we never even were looking for it, it was a realization, that each of these companies had articulated their culture in a very precise way. So Netflix had the famous theater, the freedom and responsibility document, which you can download from the internet. It's about 108-slide PowerPoint, a very easy to read, it's you know one sentence per slide. But by reading it, you get a very precise picture about what it's like to work at Netflix. And the other companies have all got the same thing, and I think pretty much you can see them all apart from Apple. They're a little bit more closed door, as always. The point was that they had articulated their future state, and this was kind of the first realization. That we could also try to not copy their culture, but copy their approach to moving towards a target state culture, which is what ended up being what we called internally as Culture by Design, and was really the subject of the book that I co wrote with Anthony, Eat, Sleep, Innovate. And the final takeaway from the whole experience with the tech giants was that we reframed our competitors. So you know, historically, obviously, as being a bank, we looked at all the other banks to see how we were doing. But we realized, well, this is probably 2013, 2014, that we were really a technology company or rapidly needed to become a technology company that happened to provide banking services. And so we reframed our competitive landscape, started comparing our approach to them rather than other banks. And internally, we've created this acronym, which was the first letters of Google, Amazon, Netflix, Apple, LinkedIn and Facebook and we put D in the middle for DBS, which so we said we wanted to be the D in Gandalf, which that yes. spells out. And it became this internal kind of rallying cry for um, certainly initially the technology department of DBS, but ultimately the whole company. But I think it's also important in parallel what we were doing. You know, we were re-architecting our applications to embrace cloud, you know, not just lifting and, and shifting and like many companies done. We fundamentally re which is one of the fundamental lessons we learned from the tech companies. We also insourced our development. You know, when I joined in 2009, we were 85% outsourced. We're now 90% insourced. So we realized if we wanted to be a technology company. That's where our differentiator was. We needed to have control over what we were building. And therefore, we have now 9,000 engineers in DBS now.
1: I'd like to explore that a little bit further because you said there that DBS has undertook a significant number of technology programs that, that have enabled innovation. And so, could you talk about the relationship between the business strategy to grow the business, innovation, and the technology at DBS and the sequence that that came in, how the relationship moved from being a classical one, as it were, into a more of an innovative one? It's a complex subject,
0: everything was happening in parallel. I wouldn't phrase it to say that technology enables innovation. I don't believe in technology-driven innovation. What I believe in is you start with the customer and the problems they're trying to solve, and you try and find new ways and better ways of solving their problem. As technology advances, there may be new ways of solving problems that you couldn't solve before. But more importantly, and more fundamentally, is that what we achieved through the technology transformation was a shift in cost. So we have kept our investment in technology flat over the last decade. But fundamentally, we shifted a huge chunk of of expenditure we were spending on just keeping the lights running to being able to invest and build new things. The second thing that we did, which I think has driven innovation more, is that we changed the relationship between the, the business and technology. It's another insight. Actually, when we were in Google, we, we asked them this question, how does a business and technology interact at Google? And they just looked as, as, as if we were stupid. You know, what are well, you talking about? Business is technology. Technology is a business. And in fact, their leadership team, they told us that all but one of them was a technologist. And this gave us the aha moment to now realize that we were miles away from that. We actually reorganized. It's the only significant reorganization we've done the last 10 or 11 years. Is that we've fused business and technology together into what we call platforms and so we have these 33 platforms across dbs now and a platform is really a logical grouping of applications uh, the people yep. associated with those applications working on them so but most importantly we then put each platform has a two-in-a-box structure of leadership so you have a business guy and you have a technology guy and they have the same kpis they have the same budget they have the same strategy whereas previously they had separate KPIs, budget, and strategy, which was causing unnecessary tension between the two. Because in a digital world, business leaders make trade-offs between developing new functionality and the security, scalability, robustness of their solutions. And previously, there was this kind of this mental outsourcing of that to the technology department, yeah. a bit of a blame game going on when anything went wrong. That has been
1: a fundamental building block to our innovation program. Yeah, fascinating. The technology team was brought in-house and then it looks as well by working with the InnerSite team, another specialist, you've selectively partnered in other areas where you needed people from outside to complement the work you were achieving. Big
0: organizations have many different partners uh, to do various things. But I would say that we work with InnoSight more on the culture side, which we can talk about later. We have some big technology partners because you can't fundamentally build everything yourself, but we build a lot more than we used to ourselves. Obviously, we're still having to deal with the big technology
1: vendors. Let's move on to the innovation side of life then. At DBS, you have an innovation team whose job you specifically set out was not to innovate. You make that point very clearly in the book. So could you talk a little bit about that? We had
0: a couple of false starts on our journey of innovation. The first thing we tried was to take the most talented senior individuals in the company and kind of put them into a room and said, don't come out until you've invented time travel or something equivalent. You know, yeah. and guess what? You know, they didn't, they struggled with that. And, and we, then we experimented with having an innovation advisory board, so-called experts to come and tell us how to innovate. And you typically very narrow focused and had no experience in transforming legacy companies like DBS. And so that didn't work. Next thing, we hired a very bright guy to become our head of innovation this guy had a small team and they came up with amazing ideas but he couldn't sell them back into the company whether they thought it was a threat or whatever i don't know but you know they it just didn't take on he couldn't land them and so he became frustrated and left and then i had been running the customer experience transformation in parallel to this and it, we had had a lot of success in bringing the whole company along with us and being very inclusive and we said can we apply this to innovation so we We hired a different, created a new team, a very eclectic team full of designers and entrepreneurs and very few people from the finance industry itself. And we said to them, you can do whatever you want. But the joke was, one rule is, under no circumstances are you allowed to innovate. And the reason is that they were asked to teach the rest of the company how to innovate. Innovation is a teachable process. Yet a lot of people felt you needed to be one of a creative type, a very special person to innovate. So our job at that time, so we're talking 2013, 2014, was to give creative confidence to the company about, yes, you can do this. It's not difficult. If you use the tools and you dedicate time to it, you can make this happen. Um, And that approach has proved to be very, very effective. has really shifted the culture of the company significantly. And the way we did that was by running a series of different programs. So I'll give you some examples. So Early on, we worked with a lot of startups, but we didn't work with startups because we wanted to take equity or we liked the idea. Startups had nothing to do with banking. There was one startup who was selling bamboo bikes. There was another startup who was trying to find usage for ugly fruit that the supermarkets didn't want. But what we did is we put our senior executives working with these startups to give them experience about what it was like to operate at speed. And to adapt and adjust and work in that way, that was very effective. But then we evolved over time. So now we work and we have accelerated programs where we have a very specific business problem that we want to solve. And then we do a a startup scan and say, okay, which startups are working in that area, then we work with them jointly to develop a solution which will take to market in in an accelerated way. Because this approach has worked very well. But it's just the realization that it's all about the people. You need people in the company who know how to innovate and have permission to innovate, have the expectation to
1: innovate. And when you can create that, it becomes a, a very strong cultural principle. To arrive at this point, like you say, around 2013, 14, you'd spent a number of number of years really uh, getting to that point. Um, but all along, I guess you've started out with a, the idea that we're gonna start putting this together. Some things are gonna go well, some things are not gonna go well. And when it doesn't go well, we're just gonna learn from that and start again. That almost becomes an investment in learning, rather than uh, oh no, it's all gone wrong again, and then maybe giving up. A lot of people come visit us, you know, and say, "How did you do it?" Etc.
0: It's only by looking backwards, um, as Steve Jobs famously said, "You can only connect the dots when you look backwards." When we started out, we didn't have it all planned. As you say, we tried a few things, and you know, if it didn't work, we tried something else. You know, many things worked, many things uh, didn't work. But one thing we did do early on. And It was this you could argue it's a punt, but we had a number of data points that gave us confidence. Um, And this is the idea about bringing the whole company along. That the advice of the day, the consultants were saying, if you want to do transformation, if you want to become an innovative company from a legacy position, what you need to do is create a small team at the center and allow them to innovate, and then you worry about the rest of the company later. We completely ignored that advice. And one of the things that informed our decision was, again, another trip to Netflix. And there's a guy there called Agent Cockroft, who's now at AWS, but he was a lead developer at Netflix, a very really smart guy. And he goes, he uh, says, oh, you're a bank. And I said, the last bank that came to see me um, said, complained. They said, it's all very well for Netflix. I've got all these young, bright engineers. And I said to them two things. One is that the average age of a developer at Netflix is 40. And by the way, I hired a good chunk of them from you, and then I just got out of their way. And this made us realize if you create the right environment for anybody, they will do amazing work. We spent some time speaking to Ed Catmull, who is the founder of Pixar, you know, in relation to the Eat Sleep Innovate book. He has this 90% rule, which I absolutely love. And he says that 90% of people, given the right environment, will do amazing work. you take a risk on them, they will do amazing work. And so we made this conscious decision that we're going to bring the whole company along on the journey. We have not fired a single person in DBS for not being part of this transformation journey. You know, And I see so many leaders that come and see us and they brag about how they had to fire lots of people because they just weren't going on board. My challenge back to them is, well, it's a leadership failure. The vast majority, if you believe the 90% rule from a Catmull, you know, then you fail as a leader. You have not created this environment where people feel that they want to get on board on the journey and feel excited by that.
1: The point about the average age of a Netflix developer is fascinating. We create these perceptions in our minds of, of successful companies that it's just full of people that are not like you and me and everybody else. And, uh, and it's just simply not the case.
0: You know, we interact with of companies, like i say, come visit us. And when we ask them, so what's getting in the way of your innovation? You know, what is the factor? The number one answer is fear. And if you think about that, it's very sad. And they're not frightened of losing their jobs. They're frightened of looking stupid in public. You just think about how sad that is for kind of the world generally, that we all live in fear in our workplace. And again, that's got to be a massive failing of leadership. And, you know, we're inspired by, a lot of people have been now, by Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety, the techniques you can use to build psychological safety in the workplace to promote
1: people feeling good about innovation, feeling good about transformation. Maybe for me, the most important point in the book is simply the definition of innovation. Innovation is something different that creates value. Then cultural change is to do with behavior and like you say, psychological safety. And one of the challenges often is if you try and do both those things at the same time on a program, it gets very confusing. Guy Anthony is the one who uh, coined
0: that a definition of uh, innovation. So, something that different creates value, which I love, by the way, as well. And the, the idea is that something different is very vague, meant to be. So, innovation can occur anywhere, however small, or however big. A tiny change to a process can make a difference. The difference between invention or creativity and innovation is that uh, that creates value. You know, there's got to be some value associated with that something different. It's a very elegant definition and it's a, it's a true north for us all. Again, looking backwards. You know, what I realized DBS did better than most of the companies that come to visit us, in my view, is that the three kind of leadership traits or role of the leader. And the first one is to create this vivid picture of the future. You know, oftentimes, you know, when I ask a leader, so you want to do this transformation, they usually say, oh, we're about two years behind you. So, OK, great. Where, what are you transforming to? Tell me about your future state. And nine times out of 10, the leaders will struggle to define that in a vivid way that would give anybody, any employee, any kind of clear view about where we're going. So that's the first thing people don't spend enough time on. Secondly, is to break the challenge down into manageable chunks. The second type of people who come and see us is a poor executive who's been tapped on the shoulder by the chairman or the board or the, the CEO and says, we need to be digital. Can you please go and drive a digital transformation program? And they kind of have no clue about how to start. This sounds far too big. Only by looking backwards on what we did, we've actually been through a series of different transformations, each one building on the success of the the previous. And then the third thing is this idea about creating the right climate for change, making people feel like they want to embrace, to unlock the energy of the company, which is there but wasted in the vast majority of,
1: of legacy type companies. When you get those three things right, magic happens. Let's take an example that's brought up in the book and I think it's quite a good one because it's highly complex but relatively straightforward to understand. There's some examples where you've used predictive analytics with some challenges that you had where you still had queues at ATM machines for example. We've got a queue at an ATM machine, you've got the innovation working now and now we do something to solve that problem. And could you just talk us through a couple of those examples? The ATM one's a great one, and it really demonstrates you know,
0: this definition of innovation is so something different that creates value. Because the problem is, is your customer problem is you're making them wait at ATMs. So there is not one thing you can do to fix that problem. DBS has the busiest ATM network on the planet for historical reasons, and the average ATM machine has 5,000 transactions a month, and we're running at 30,000 transactions a month. The obvious answer is add more ATMs. but Unfortunately, that's just like adding a lane to the M25. You know, it just gets clogged up straight away. It wasn't working. You know, the more ATMs we added, the more people used them. So we need to do something different. And one of the things we did, as you just alluded to, was we used predictive analytics to have a very accurate forecast of when any given ATM was going to run out of cash. So why is that important? Because when you're filling the cash machine, the ATM, then it's out of action. Right? Yeah. So queues form. That was quite a sophisticated thing. We got very accurate uh, results and big improvements. We did less sophisticated things which were just the same, something different that creates value, but we started doing our replenishment of machines at night when there's no customers around, right? It's obvious, right, when you think about it, but we weren't doing it before, and we got our efficiencies because the security vans are going around. We go quicker because there was no traffic on the road. It's just an obvious thing to do that we never did before. We changed the UX so that when you put your card in, it recognize who you are and your most frequent transaction would be defaulted so you wouldn't have to navigate so we could reduce the amount of time each customer was at the atm and then we also figured out that a lot of people just wanted that balance and so on our mobile banking app we had this function called peak to balance which meant you can just press the screen you didn't need to log in and it would tell you your balance of your main account so again make it easier for people to get that balance without having to go to the atm and it was just a combination of, of these things. Each one is an example of innovation, and collectively they solved the problem. It was just that whole relentless program of work, not to satisfy with one improvement, but just this continuous improvement towards a goal. It was kind of the whole thing in action.
1: Because of the way you've set up innovation at DBS, it's your 90% rule. It's people who are saying, well, actually, you know, they can just point out to you relatively straightforwardly what the challenge is. Whereas it's someone like myself might look at it from the outside and never really get into that detail to understand what the real problem is. That's absolutely right. So we had PhD
0: data scientists trying to predict when there would be a cash outage. But then in our design thinking lab, we had a cardboard ATM and we had one of the team was inside the ATM, being the ATM. And one of the problems actually we had, which is one of my favorite stories, was a remarkable number of people forget to take their card out of the machine at the end and we had a big process of getting cards back to people and you know and so we were trying to figure out why this was the case and we looked at the video so you have these security videos and atms that look out and you can see people as they're saying what happens when they actually forget the card for some reason it was always men who did this i don't know why but and there was you could see them staring at the screen and when the message says please take your card they were looking at the the screen we are hypothesis that they got distracted by something But at that time, they were looking at the screen and the message was, please take your card. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. So we mocked it up in our design thinking lab, the cardboard ATM, we had pieces of A4 paper representing the screen and seeing what was happening. And that's when we discovered at that same time, it says, please take your card, your latest balance is. And so what was happening is people were surprised by their balance. And they were so shocked about what they were seeing. They wonder, how did I spend all that money? They yeah. had ignored the other message. So, of course, the, this, the answer was very simple, is you just split those two uh, pieces of information up, and again, we made a big improvement. But the point is, you're exactly right, is you need all these different skills to come together to solve the one problem in different ways. Very powerful.
1: Great. Let's talk about the behavioral side of it. You're credited in the book with coining this term, mojo for meetings, establishing a sort of culture of change in parallel with the innovation that's going on. So could you talk a little bit about the Mojo meetings and then perhaps how, when you are innovating, how meetings run in that way actually uh, help the innovation as well? Meeting Mojo is an astonishing story for a number of reasons.
0: But if I go back in time, so this is 2016. Um, we have our leadership conference. And by the way, DBS, our leadership conference, are not about strategy and results and numbers. They're about teaching 250 people in the company to drive transformation. And so I was on facilitating the top 250 people in the company on our first ever what we call culture by design workshop. Okay, so you define your future state culture very precisely, lesson learned from the Gandalf companies. Then you say, what are the biggest blockers that are uh, in the way of getting that future state culture? And then what experiments can you run to see if you can overcome the blockers bit by bit? And so we had spent a lot of time defining our culture. The top line was we wanted to be a 28,000 person startup but underneath that we had very precise characteristics that we wanted to to move towards then in this workshop I you know I asked the question of the top 250 people in the company I said, so what are the things that are getting in the way of us becoming this 28000 person startup and I was astonished by the reply I was almost embarrassed because the answer was our meeting culture we have too many that badly run people are late we you know there's no agenda too many people in the room etc etc and so okay, And and all that is preventing us doing all the things you're asking us to do to become a 28,000-person startup. So we said, okay, what can we do differently? And so we brainstormed a few things. And we we landed on something yes called Meeting Mojo. And so now, at every meeting at DBS, there is a MO, right? And MO stands for Meeting Owner. And the meeting owner has to do three things. At the beginning of the meeting, they have to state the purpose of the meeting. At the end of the meeting, they have to summarize the meeting. But most importantly, during the meeting, they have to ensure there is equal share of voice. Again, coming back to this concept of psychological safety, trying to encourage people to participate, which is an idea we just got out straight from Google, by the way. But Mo also appoints Joe and Joe stands for joyful observer, which is a nod to our vision of making banking joyful. But Joe at the end of the meeting just says how well Mo did those three things. And when we implemented this, our meeting effectiveness as measured by surveys doubled. It was astonishing. And people kind of uh, embraced this more than I ever could have a good dream that they would. It was role modeled by a CEO and the top team. Everybody was doing it and we could see people's behavior change. There were people who felt, you know, that were kind of felt it was a bit odd um, at first. And then I, kind of including myself, the first time you do it, you feel a bit awkward. But then you realize if it's not feeling awkward, then you're not changing habits. Um, there were those people who didn't want to do it at all, but they still were made conscious of these meeting-type behaviors, and even those guys were improving even though they didn't embrace Mojo fully. But the most exciting thing of all is we realize that we've created a mechanism for us to define a culture and move it to a future-state culture by design. And We have subsequently introduced many, many of these different rituals, if you like, in what we call in the book, Beans, Behavior, Enablers, and Nudges but we've introduced many, some haven't worked, a lot have, you know. and we are you know, accelerating now towards this, this culture of being a 28,000 person startup very effectively.
1: Yes, and I think the website has a list of these beans. It's important that we think of these beans ourselves. Uh, however, there is help at hand to provide some people who've already had the idea just coming into your mind.
0: That's a really important point you make is, yes, there are, there's 101 on in the book and on the website, but they're not there to blindly copy can be inspired by the 101, but you've got to go through this process of saying, what are our blockers? What are our specific blockers and, and which, how do we overcome them? And you have to experiment you and expect some of them not to work. The ones that do work, scale it through the company, start small and, and test and learn along the way.
1: I'd really recommend the book. It makes it so much more straightforward to then go into your own innovation exercise with that much more clarity to bring about transformation. What's the, the one thing you'd like us to take away from our talk today, Paul?
0: Well, you know, the number one lesson I've learned in the last 10 years working at DBS's Transformation is it's all about people. And the fact that people who come to see us and they say, show us your technology, you know, how have you transformed your technology? And we're very open when we'll tell them, but it's the wrong question. The right question is how did you get your legacy, your developers for your legacy technology motivated enough to drive this incredible transformation how did you get your business people to be enthused and want to drive innovation that's the right question and of course you know these three steps i outlined before you know hopefully will give people an idea about how to get going on that but as a leader that
1: is your job is to unlock the energy and the passion yeah thanks very much for that thought there paul and um, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you if they would like to Best way is LinkedIn.
0: You can find me, Paul Cobben, on LinkedIn.
1: Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This podcast series is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studios, Oxford, UK.